Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members, because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're gonna have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic. We want to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are all in this together, my friends. As of today, May 21st, we have more than 93,000 confirmed COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. Meanwhile, here's a list of the states currently coming out of lockdown in one way or another. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota. All all 50 states are coming out, everybody. But speaking of Minnesota, that's the very state whence today's guest hails. Not only that, it's the state where he's from. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Osterholm, a professor of public health at the University of Minnesota and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, CIDRAP, also known as SIDRAP. It's been the source of a lot of guidance on topics that are integral to making a plan to get us out of this thing, including some different scenarios of how this all may play out and what we should do in each scenario, along with who should go where, and who should be wearing a mask, when it includes how leaders can effectively communicate during this crisis. Dr. Olserholm, welcome to Science Rules. Is it okay if I call you Mike? Please do. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So your center, SIDRAP, outlined three scenarios for the path that this current pandemic may take. What are those scenarios? What they all are are possible avenues for taking this virus and its effect it's had on the population to date of infecting between 5 to 20% of people in the United States, in most cases it's closer to 5% for most of the country, and watching that virus somehow get to what will be at least 60 or 70% of the population infected uh, until we get what we call herd immunity, where there's a sufficient number of people infected developing immunity, hopefully durable immunity, that then stop the virus transmission uh, or at least slow it down for some time. Now, if I add one caveat to that 60 or 70 percent, I would much rather achieve it by having people vaccinated and developing immunity that way. But either way, whether we have a vaccine or not, we'll get there. 
this virus will assure us of that. So, and you say that based on experience with countless other viruses in the past. Well, in fact, uh, our history has been littered, unfortunately, with these kinds of viruses, some which are very infectious, like measles, where you need to actually have more than 90 plus percent of the population protected before you uh, are able to slow down transmission. Other diseases are much slower. I mean, even influenza virus, which is still very dynamic, appears to be less infectious than this virus. So the more the infectiousness, the higher the proportion of the population that has to be immune, one way or the other. Uh, in order to really slow down the transmission. So you say when we get to 60 or 70%, more than half of us are going to get sick. Well, I would uh, assume at this point that uh, that's surely a possibility. Let me come back and just remind people again, is how we deal with this virus. If we went into a lockdown, much like was seen in Wuhan for 18 or 20 weeks, you know, we could probably maybe buy time to get to the 60 or 70% level by vaccine if we do have a successful vaccine in 12 to 18 months. Now, the challenge, of course, is we all recognize locking down like Wuhan would destroy our economy, and I would even argue severely impact, if not destroy our society. So I don't think that's an option. 18 months is playing hardball. That's not, it's just not that likely. It's going to be a couple years. I, well, look, first of all, let me tell you, I agree. Actually, I agree with that. So I, I, I have come from the camp of saying right now our vaccine strategy is a hopeful one, but we all know hope is not a strategy. And uh, so I'm with you completely. And, uh, you know, I was asked this past week about some of the new developments that have made news public relations wise, you know, where we're at in the vaccine uh, world. And I've likened it to be at a Churchill Downs where the gates have just opened. Not everybody's tail has even gotten out of the gate yet. And, uh, you know, you're asking me to call the race? Forget it. So that's where we're at, I think. All right. So we can't shut down for 18 months. What do you think we should do? Well, let's just start with the boundaries. So one guardrail is just that. We shut down for 18 months or more. The other guardrail is, well, let's just let it go. Let's just get it over with. And uh, I think that we all recognize that that's not a doable situation. I think one of the science facts that's really important for people to understand, and as somebody in public health who has considered this possibility for all my career, but yet now shocked that I'm living through it, just think about this. Uh, eight, uh, when you look at the situation 80 days ago, this disease, COVID-19, was not even in the top 75 causes of death in this country. Much of the last month, it was the number one cause of death day by day. Nothing has done that since 1918 swine flu. So, you know, this has just been with 5 to 15% of the population that have been infected that got us there. So imagine if we unleashed another 50% or more of the population to become infected. It's hard to imagine. It's a, it is a catastrophe. However, because we've been through this before, you all, people in your business at SIDRAP and everywhere, have thought this through. So one boundary condition is we lock down for a year and a half. The other boundary condition is we don't do anything. You're in the middle. What should we do? Well, that's where we're trying to thread the rope through the needle. And one of the challenges we have is that today, at least 40% of our adult population in this country, and it varies somewhat state by state, are people who are at potentially uh, moderate to high risk of a severe disease outcome with this infection or even dying. When you look at the incidence of heart disease, kidney disease, diabetes, and the one that is really overriding that is unspoken but critical is obesity. 
45% of our nation's population over age 45 are obese, uh, severely obese. We know when you are obese, besides having an increased occurrence of, of hypertension, of diabetes, all these cofactors that go with that same kind of, of, of physiologic condition, that there are actually potential immunologic features. We've seen that with influenza. So whatever the reason is, the point being, though, that you asked me, how are we going to try to get through this? And I'm sitting here saying, well, you know, I got 40% of the population who are adults that we somehow or another need to bubble or protect or at least have help them protect themselves. And I think that's the great debate today. Who does it? Does the government protect them? Meaning that you shut down businesses, you restrict movement, or is it left up to us as those people who have these risk factors to protect ourselves? That's the big debate today. All right. So let's say it's some of each. What about that? I think that actually is going to be threading that rope through the needle. That's exactly what we're trying to come up with. All right. So... Should we be doing two things, encouraging people to walk and encouraging people to wear masks? Should we be doing that somehow socially? First of all, let's just take a step back and say being physically fit is good for a lot of reasons. Also, stop smoking. That's another issue here in terms of potential lung involvement and an increased risk of having a bad outcome. So right there, uh, yes, there are many health indicators that would be improved. The question on the mask is a much more complicated one. Uh, today, the life-saving masks, the N95 respirators that healthcare workers use or should use if they have them, are the tight face-fitting masks that are really very important in stopping aerosols, these little fine droplets that we breathe out. Surgical masks and cloth masks don't provide anywhere close to that kind of protection because, again, it's not a tight face fit. It's not about the filtering through the cloth necessarily, although that can play a role. It's about the fact that the air is leaking in through all the sides. It's like a, when, you're sw- when you're in a, a, a swimming situation in the summertime and you put a little mask on to dive under the water and all of a sudden it leaks. It doesn't leak through the glass. It leaks through the sides of the seal. And so one of the challenges we have with masks today is I think we've overassured people far, far too much that they'll protect you. And that while they may reduce some of the larger droplets coming out or taking in the larger droplets, um, you know, we have to be very mindful that a high-risk person shouldn't feel protected by a mask. Do you know that actually in China, in the Hubei province, where this whole entire situation emerged, had among the highest routine use of cloth masks in the world? And you know what? It had literally no impact at all on that rapidly emerging pandemic. If you look at 1918, where there actually were studies of people who used masks and people who didn't, they found no difference in the rate of infection between those who did and didn't. But what about people who have N95s? Well, N95s are different. And again, I want to call that out as a respirator as opposed to surgical and cloth masks. You know what we could do today that would be a second miracle, vaccine being the first miracle, is if we had a reusable N95 that every citizen could have that would be a tight face fit that could be washed hundreds of times uh, and maintain the face fit and also the, the electrostatic charge that protects the virus. That would be a godsend if we had that. The technology is there. Look at, we already have effective N95s. I've added a new dimension to it, which is a challenge. Can you wash it 300 times and that you actually keep the fit and the electrostatic charge? We'll be back right after this. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, 
because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Now, shutting down for a year and a half, uh, not acceptable. Letting everybody get sick and die, not acceptable. What's the middle road? I mean, is it just getting young people and N95 masks to deliver all our goods? Uh, What's the middle road? The first step is having this very discussion. Because you know why? That by itself has been a challenge. Because number one, people don't want to believe we have to prepare for this. There are far too many people that are conveniently willing to believe that we're just about done. Another couple of weeks, the, the, the peak is over, the cases are coming down, and life goes on as normal. Look at the business world. How can the markets today react the way they do uh, without believing that we really have a bright future that way? That's number one. Number two is ha- making it safe to have these discussions because everyone will equate immediately lives and dollars. And then they somehow, the people who are concerned about the dollars aren't concerned about lives. People who are concerned about lives don't understand what they're doing from a a budget, economy, and society standpoint. Legitimizing both. And you and I both know, because we've spent our careers looking at health outcomes and poverty in of itself, economic uh, distraught individuals, their health status is substantially reduced. We have 18 million people who are about ready to lose their health insurance. Uh, we know that psychologically, uh, m- the mental illness issues are a severe challenge uh, during these times. So we can't neglect that. So what we have to do is craft a way to say, I can't protect you completely. You know, don't ask me if the school is safe for your kids. Ask me what's safer. I, I-, I would tell you, if you wanted to use the judgment that is the school safe or not for your children, then don't send them to school because getting in that car, that bus every day is not 100% safe. You and I would agree it's, a, it's an acceptable safety level. But this is one of the challenges we have is helping people come to a consensus and saying, we're not going to save everyone, but this is what we're going to do to get through it. And we don't save everybody in a flu year. We don't save everybody from other in foodborne infectious diseases. We can't be expected to do the same here. But at the same time, we can't let it go willy-nilly. So I would say protect those at most at risk and help them help by minimizing their outside contact. And let's just hope, and I say hope, get to that vaccine that can one day save us. And that may never happen, but we can hope. So part of SIDRAP's thing is advising leaders on how they should address this, how they should talk about this. Can you talk about your advice to people who have to talk about it? 
Well, first of all, we have to understand the, the, the rules of the game, the ground rules. And in all my career, I've been in this business 45 years, I would never have understood until today, and, I, and I've been through a lot, what it must have been like to live in the Civil War and watch families divide between the North and the South. I've seen division over this disease where families who have, for the last 30 years, had wonderful relationships between the siblings who are not talking to each other right now because uh, part of them believe that this has all been a, a, a effort by the Chinese to negatively impact our government. The deep state is behind it and that uh, it's an attempt to get at the president. The other side basically is the fact that we're all going to die, you know, and that we have to take any measure to stop that. So I think right now what I'm trying to find is ways that how do you reassure a parent that they should send their child to school knowing full well, I can't guarantee them complete safety. Um, How do we actually help people who are, for example, obese? You know, in the past, we've talked about this in terms of, you know, increased risk of heart attacks and all these other issues. Now we're talking about we want you need to be protected against this virus in a way that, well, do we actually somehow separate out people who are obese? Uh, How much obesity? Uh, What if you have an underlying disease? What does that mean? Um, Are you going to be somehow segregated? Are you going to be discriminated against? Or do we just say, you know, it's up to you. It's your choice. There are so many social, political, economic, and frankly, downright moral issues around this virus that the virus doesn't care about any of those. It only cares about chemistry, physics, and biology, and that's all it's working on. And we're caught up on the other things, but we have to be. And I think that uh, that's what I'm trying to foster is that very discussion, because we're going to be with this for a long time. As you and I started this show, this is not going to get over with next week. And, And it's not too late to actually help us find a better course for the months ahead. So let's talk about this example. Mm-hmm. What do you think New York's doing? Is New York doing the right thing? Is Andrew Cuomo showing effective leadership or is he making mistakes? I, th- I think that what New York did to shave off the peak of that curve was remarkable. The distancing issue was very important because it did slow down transmission. Again, I'm never going to say it's going to stop it. It's a time volume kind of issue. You know, you can have 100 cases that all present to emergency rooms today or you can have 10 cases a week for 10 weeks. And I'll tell you that two different situations in terms of how we care. So the New Yorkers surely were spared what could have been. But the question is, where will they be next year at this time? So the challenge we have for New York is helping them understand, number one, they're not done. And I think that the governor gets that. He actually is looking at that as it relates to preparing for a new waves of illness. What are the uh, kinds of medical resources they're going to need? Uh, you know, many of them can't fathom the idea that it could be worse than it was before, but it could be and could be substantially worse. So I think that's an example of New York where uh, they're, they're trying to fine tune the distancing issues. I mean, when, when the whole recommendation for shutting down Broadway came to play and said it will be done in April, I thought to myself, oh, my, that's like somebody thinking, you know, after the first hour of a Category 5 hurricane, uh, the outer rim of it coming on shore, we're done. No way. And so one of the things is also managing expectations long term. It's also trying to understand how do we help economically what's happened. I am no economist at all, but I watch what's happening to things like restaurants and and other small businesses like that. And I think we as a country have to help them. 
because they're not just done now. They still have a long ways to go. So compare New York to, say, Texas and Georgia, where they're reopening. And if you're looking at a very fine hour by hour, they're uh, not their uh, infection rate has not gone up much over the last few days. Well, one of the challenges that we have right now is understanding what we're doing to impact this virus and what the virus is doing on its own. As I've said many times, we're not driving this tiger, we're riding it. We're riding it. And so if this were like an influenza model, we can see the cases start to go down dramatically soon. Not because we closed up or oh, that we opened up. We we're going to go down no matter what. And the challenge I have with that is that, number one, I don't want anyone to think I want anybody to get sick, particularly seriously, or die. But frankly, that would scare the hell out of me if we suddenly saw cases disappear because it would basically give much more evidence to the fact that this is very likely going to act like an influenza virus. And we could see a very sizable peak in late summer, early fall. We don't know. That's number one. So what happens in Georgia and Florida, we have to be very careful to stop micro-analyzing it and saying, oh my, we're now in two weeks out. You know, we could release everybody back and go back to the good old days and see the case numbers decrease. That would be the worst thing that could happen. So I think we're in that phase right now. Why would that be the worst thing that could happen? Because to me, that would say an influenza-like second peak is coming. If cases stayed elevated, kind of a slow burn, which was one of our scenarios, or we had kind of the foothill model where we had little outbreaks popping up all over. They would come, they would go, they would come, they would go. Um, and we're all, each one of those working as closer to that 60 to 70%. That would say, well, you know, maybe this is manageable. This means that the communities are not going to be overrun. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people in this uh, country today that don't know anybody personally who's had this. And they're all looking at us saying, why are you making us do this? So one last thing before you go. How do you feel about testing? Uh, we actually just put a document out yesterday on testing. I am absolutely uh, a major supporter of testing. Testing is very important. But we've got to get away from the test, test, test mantra. It is absolutely wrong. Uh, we need smart testing. And we laid out clearly in this document, it's the right person getting tested with the right test at the right time for the right uh, result, and then the right thing happens because that result's been obtained. So what's the right result? What's, what's the right test? Well, a good example would be what we just saw at the White House over the last few weeks. I wrote about this New York Times more than a month ago, saying that the tests that they were using to detect people who were infected had many uh, false negatives, meaning that people would test, I don't have it, when they do. Now, imagine trying to protect the President of the United States the safety of the entire White House using a test that was so poorly designed and, and allowed to be on the market for that purpose. Now, the test wasn't, ironically, licensed for that purpose. There's a clear instruction that says if you are negative, you still have to have a confirmation with a regular PCR test. But it got applied in that setting. You know, that would be like uh, giving squirt guns to the Secret Service and saying protect the president. That's wrong testing. So what we've basically laid out is how to have a comprehensive testing surveillance program, a clinical piece to the program, how to pick up hotspots, how to respond to hotspots, and what to do. We need to be strategic and tactical in our testing and not just test, test, test. It's wrong. 
Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Our guest today has been Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's a professor of public health at the University of Minnesota and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP. I encourage you to join the conversation. Leave us a voicemail. You remember voicemails. You call, you talk, the beep, the thing. Tell us about your experience with the pandemic. Call us on 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785. I am Bill Nye, your host. And my friends, this is a pandemic, a worldwide infection of us, us humans. We are all in this together. Now more than ever, science rules. And if you like Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. It helps us tune the show to what you want to hear. So thank you. And Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson once again, and our engineer is again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, my friends, science rules. Three more things. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Thank you. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.